Welcome, Investigator. Evil is on the rise. Crime is escalating. Our mission is to eliminate the crime by exposing evil, examine why it manifests, and highlight the brave souls that confront it every day. Join us as we work together to bring justice to every victim. Welcome to All Things Crime. Here's your host, Jared Bradley. Hey, everybody. It's Jared. Welcome back to another episode of All Things Crime. I have a couple of awesome guests this morning. But before that, I just want to thank you as an audience for listening and watching on our YouTube channel and uh, highly encourage you to subscribe and hit that bell so that you never miss an episode. This morning, our sponsor is Highway 30, Texas edition. We were just at the Highway 30 Music Festival, and it was absolutely fantastic up in Filer, Idaho. This happens every June, so if you uh, are anywhere in the Northwest, I uh, Man, it's just a great time. But now they're expanding into Texas. So in October, they're going to be down in Texas. So definitely uh, look into that, get your tickets, and we will put the link into the comments and into the text section. So with that, I want to bring in my guest, Tom Myers, who's also been with us multiple, multiple episodes. But our special guest is Barbara Ray Venter. And did I, did I pronounce that right, Barbara? You did. Oh, awesome. That's one of my uh, biggest problems is enunciation here. So, but Barbara, you know, I was reading over your, or your accolades and where do we start? So first is you're the director of the investigative genetic genealogy at Gene by Gene and the president and co-founder of Firebird Forensics Group. So to start off with, uh, Barbara, why don't you tell us about those positions and uh, kind of how they got you into and and actually how you got into genetic uh, genealogy. So I actually didn't choose to go into investigative genetic genealogy and I'll just call it IgG. That's much easier. It kind of chose me. I was actually working on my own family history research and it's somewhat difficult to trace. The paper trail is not very good. My ancestors on both sides of my family at various points emigrated to New Zealand. And the paper trail back from New Zealand to Scotland, which is where most of my ancestors are from, is not good. So I decided to use DNA. And so I pestered all of my cousins to to do DNA testing and tried to sort out how I could connect the dots back to Scotland. In that process, I matched with, so I shared DNA with a number of people who are adoptees. One person in particular was a guy called David Abbott. He lives in Kent in England. And for David, I was actually one of his bigger matches. And David was in his 70s. He had recently discovered that the man he thought was his father was not his father. He had kind of an interesting way of finding out. He had been watching the show, Who Do You Think You Are?, And they were showing, you know, how you could do your family history research. You know, you get your birth certificates, got your parents' information on it, and so on. You you then trace back through other other relatives. So for some reason, he had actually never gotten a a copy of his birth certificate. And so in England, you can actually go online and order a copy of your birth certificate. So he did that, but he couldn't find himself. And on a, on a hunch, he searched under his mother's maiden name and bingo, there he was. And he was a year older than he thought he was. Um, Oh, that's a bummer. (laughs) (laughs) Not what you want to find out. 
So his mother had actually recently died of cancer. So there was no way for him to ask her what the heck was going on. His mother's sister, however, was still alive. And so he asked her, so, you know, what, what's going on? And she said, well, your father was a Canadian airman who was stationed in the UK during World War II. She wouldn't tell him anything else. That's all she would tell him. And so he thought, well, he'd try to figure this out, do some DNA testing. And so I, of course, happened to be one of his matches. I unfortunately was not a match on his father's side. I actually matched on his mother's side because I also matched with his aunt. But meanwhile, I was still able to try and help him with, you know, trying to figure this out. It actually is probably one of my longest running cases because he was from the UK and we were trying to look at Canadian records. He actually had very, very few people who shared DNA with him. And we finally got a close match about a year and a half ago. And so we've, we've tracked down who we think it is. Um, he hasn't yet confirmed it, but it was uh, somebody who was actually from Scotland who had emigrated to Canada. And so he hasn't yet confirmed it, as I said, but at least he now knows who the man probably was. Wow. So that was, that was my start. Because I didn't know how to do any of this stuff, I went online and I found a group called DNA Adoption who actually taught mm -hmm. online classes for people who were adoptees to how to use their DNA to find their birth relatives. So I took that class. It was a six-week class at the time and got pretty good at doing this. Because I have a science background, the folks at DNA Adoption asked me if I would be willing to help teach the classes and answer their webmail questions that came in. So I agreed to do that. And then one of the webmails that came in was from a deputy, Peter Headley, in San Bernardino mm -hmm. in the uh, Sheriff's Department Crimes Against Children detail. And basically what he wanted to know was this technique that we're teaching to adoptees, could that be used to identify somebody who was abducted as an infant and had no clue who she was, no information about where she was from or anything about her family? And so I said, sure, it should work. And so I volunteered to, to help him with working on that. And of course, that was the Lisa Jensen case, which I talk about in my book. And as we were talking about just before the show, it was not the usual unknown parentage case. And normally when you get through with an unknown parentage case, you've identified somebody's parents and everybody lives happily ever after, hopefully. And that's sort of the end of it. In this particular case, it wasn't the end of it. It was sort of the beginning of it because it turned out that the man that had abducted Lisa, he was actually a serial killer. And so then it was a case of unraveling some of his crimes and helping with solving a long-standing cold case from New Hampshire called the Bearbrook Four, which was four, four people, an adult female and three little girls, who had been discovered over a 15-year period, stuffed into steel barrels and dumped in Bearbrook Park in New Hampshire. And so that was kind of the beginning of everything. So Lisa was, was, of course, a criminal case. She was an abductee who didn't know who she was. We sorted out who the guy who had abducted her was. He was somebody who had something like 15 aliases. And these were not made up names. The guy was an electrician. And so he would be working on people's homes, doing remodeling or whatever else. And he would help himself to their identity. So he actually stole real identities. He had a phenomenal memory. He could remember all of these aliases. 
He could trot out social security numbers, driver's license numbers, you name it. He had it in his head. And he, he you know, he could get stopped on a, uh, he got stopped on one occasion. Uh, I guess he was driving drunk. And he was able to just rattle off all the information about the particular po- person whose identity w- he was using at the time. Um, so interesting character. So we identified who he really was. I worked with one of the ladies who's actually in my Firebird Forensics group, Janelle Davidson. We figured out who he was using blood from, he he'd actually died in prison here in California. And we were able to get a blood cut from his autopsy and get DNA from that to figure out who he was. And then we also worked on identifying three of the four victims uh, from the Bearbrook case. We were able to identify the adult female and then two of the little girls who turned out to be her daughters. In another really strange twist in the story, the remaining little girl is actually the daughter of the killer, Rasmussen. And so the story sort of keeps on and on and on. So we're still working on identifying that remaining little girl. Mm. Yeah, Tom, you had, and I, I'm going to be putting this into the, the video, of course. And so if, if any of you are actually listening to this, then you may want to click over to the YouTube channel so that you can see this graphic. And, and Tom, we really appreciate you putting this graphic together. Why don't you kind of explain, Tom, what you put together, and then we can have Barbara fill in any of the details or make whatever corrections he needs to do on you, Ranger. Sure, be glad to. And the process, as I said earlier, as we worked our way up to this, I reverse engineered this when I first heard about Golden State Killer, GSK, and and how this whole thing came about. And then that led me to the Bear Brook State Park murders. I guess it was a large trailer park that was inside the, the county there in the smack dab, the center of New Hampshire, near Allentown. And what I did was I worked to reverse that entire process and say, how did this happen? How did somebody, somebody didn't just wake up one day and do this. They had to have a clue somewhere. And that's uh, what I'm dying to ask Barbara here, but I'll, I'll jump right into the graphic here. So in what you were saying is the big bifurcation is between New Hampshire and California. And the series of cases that were took place up in New Hampshire, as you spoke to before, were the four murders at least probably five if you if you count uh, Lisa Jensen's mother, which was probably killed by him as well. And that seems to be the genesis of genetic investigative genealogy. And correct me if I'm wrong on that, Barbara. I think that's a probably a fair assessment. And up in New Hampshire, and then somewhere along the way in tracking Terry Petter Rasmussen out to California, someone asked or someone got smart enough to say, hey, I'd like to do this also on the case. Um, and that would be Golden State Killer. But Backing up again, the four persons you spoke about before in the two barrels, one found in 1985, later when the investigators out walking the site, is my understanding, he saw this second barrel that was out there in 2015 year time break in between the two. And then we're off and running on this very cold case, circa 77 to 81. It seems to be the time period when the four young ladies are murdered there. And the trail that leads upward into Rasmussen comes from the Bodine family, and then it works its way out from the genetic connections there. By the way, I, I stalled there because I was stunned when you said about the rootless hair DNA. How, 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 can you explain that a bit? That was awesome. So that, that was one of those pure serendipity type things. I was recovering from some surgery at home, and so I was somewhat bored. And so I don't normally sit surfing around on the imp- internet. I had come to a brick wall in trying to identify who the Bearbrook victims were. 
we had tried many times to get DNA from their remains, but they'd been out there so long that the bodies were really heavily contaminated. And so the DNA that we were getting was 98% bacterial DNA and only about 2% human. Theoretically, you could amplify the, the human DNA, but it would be very, very expensive and very, very time consuming. So I really sort of felt like we weren't going to be able to figure out who, who those people were. And so I'm surfing around on the internet and I see this article on identifying a little girl called Miranda Eve over in the East Bay here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I'm looking at that, so I'm reading it through. And so Miranda Eve was the name given to a little girl whose coffin was unearthed in the basement of a home in San Francisco that was undergoing renovation. And back in the day, San Francisco had actually moved all of their burial grounds out of the city to the south of San Francisco to a place called Colma. And apparently they missed a few coffins, and this was one of them. So the question was, who was this little girl? And so using aerial photography, they figured out that the house was probably built on the site of the Oddfellow Cemetery. And they were able to pin down probably which burial site it was. So, so they had an idea as to who this little girl probably was. So they thought that she was from the Cook. And so what they did is they tracked down a fellow who would be her great, great nephew who lived in Marin County, right across the bay. And so they asked him if he would do DNA testing. So this is not IgG. This is just pure and simple comparing, you know, comparing DNA from two people and saying, are they related? And so in this case, uh, in fact, the little girl was a match with the guy who was her, would have been her great, great nephew. And so they were able to confirm who it was. What was exciting about the story is I'm reading around as to what was the source of the DNA that was used. It was rootless hair. Yeah. I was so excited. If I could have jumped out of bed, I would have jumped out of bed and driven up to Santa Cruz, which is where the guy who had done this wonderful work is located. He's at the University of California at Santa Cruz. So when I did recover, we got together for lunch in Moss Landing, which is about halfway between where I live and Monterey, and he is in Santa Cruz. And so we discussed whether or not he'd be interested in working on some forensic cases and he indicated that he would. And so that was sort of how this came about. So um, it was not known that there was nuclear DNA, which is the DNA that we needed for doing the IgG, was in the hair shaft. It was known there was mitochondrial DNA, but not, not nuclear DNA. The problem, it turned out, was that as the hair shaft grows, the cells go through a process called apoptosis or pro programmed cell death. And during that process, the DNA gets chopped up into little tiny pieces, so small that they're not detectable using regular techniques like polymerase chain reaction, PCR, mm -hmm. um, which is the standard techniques that, that is used for detecting DNA. So that requires a, a, a larger piece of DNA, um, needs 150 base pairs, the DNA that's in the hair shaft is maybe about 40 to 50 base pairs, so just a fraction of what you need to use the PCR technology. Thanks for joining us. Your attention today brings us one step closer to exposing and eliminating the evil that brings crime to our communities. Hit subscribe and share this episode. Together, we will bring justice to every victim.